Before we get into today's subject, or the main subject of today, I'd like to do a little bit of review uh, from the past two sessions. And whenever you study scripture uh, or history of regarding the church, don't feel that once you, particularly if you're going book by book through the Bible, uh, don't think that once you've uh, completed one book that you can, all right, put that in the, the drawer and go on to something else. The Bible is set up, and this was God's intent, in such a way as that you should bring all of what you've learned previously, bring it forward, and try to connect what you are currently learning with what you've learned in the past. You can't just departmentalize the history and the meanings and the purpose of the church. It all connects to God's plan of salvation in one form or another. So it's important that we kind of constantly bring forward what we've learned in the past. And that's why I like to do a little bit of review, not hopefully too much, but uh, something that you'll at least remember from previous discussions and go on. Last time we talked uh, about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That was a tumultuous event, not only for uh, the Jewish people, but for those who accepted Christ and went on. The temple, as used by the Jewish people at that particular time, was being used inappropriately, you might say, as a symbol of pride rather than as a house of worship. And that is part of the reason why God allowed the Romans to destroy it. But in destroying the temple, it essentially destroyed the structure of Judaism up to that time period. And the priesthood was totally ruined and put out of business. The Jewish faith does not have a priesthood as it did uh, back in that time period of the first century. Yes, it has rabbis, but each rabbi is sort of on his own, or lately on her own, uh, as far as what she teaches and what she believes and how it is all put together and goes out to their congregation. There is no central authority. There is no central creed. Uh, and that is part of God's plan again. The Judaism could only take God's plan of salvation so far. And then it needed something in addition, something that mankind, neither Jew nor Christian or anyone else, could give. And that was a perfect sacrifice for the redemption of the sins of all mankind. And that is why God himself had to give himself in the form of the, the, the second person of the Blessed Trinity to come to us to be one of us. That is why he was born in a very simple way by and with the help of simple people. Uh, and I don't mean simple in a derogatory way. I mean very plain, ordinary uh, people of very low stature. 
um, and status. And then he lived that way. And his teachings were very simple teachings. He did not teach any great and glorious new things. He did not come as the uh, Romans and the Jewish leaders expected and wanted with some great uh, knight on shining armor who would ride into town and rout the German, uh, the Jewish, excuse me, got, blah, my, <laughs> got my wars all mixed up here, uh, rout the Romans and get them out of there and return Judaism uh, to its sovereign uh, self as it was before. Uh, that wasn't part of God's plan. He likes simple things. He likes simplicity, honesty, sincerity, not big grandiose things. All right. So the destruction of the temple left the Jewish people pretty much desolate uh, without <coughs> any authority to guide them. And that is just a small part of the reason that why Christianity developed so rapidly because the Jewish people longed to have some connection with Christ, some connection with God through Christ. And as they began to understand, and as Paul and the other apostles went out and began to preach, Christianity was gobbled up, was absorbed quickly because people wanted it, a relationship with God. And therefore, when Christianity came along, with something that they could identify with, with a simple man who taught very plain things, then they really clung to it. And so Christianity spread throughout in a way that nothing else probably could have. And that was good for the Christians, but not for the Jews. And the Jews, you know, after Christ was crucified and so forth, had to fight off those people who tried uh, to maintain belief in the one that was crucified after the destruction of the temple by the Romans, which was sanctioned by God. Uh, Judaism pretty much died out as a force. But the Jewish people still tried to cling to what they believed, but it did not last. And Judaism floundered for a couple hundred years. Later on, the Talmud was developed, even though the Talmud was a history of the teachings um, of the Old Testament and their meaning and their explanation, etc., etc. It began way back in the 6th century BC and with, uh, Babylon, during the Babylonian captivity, but it was not written, written down and developed until around the 3rd or 4th century AD. The Talmud is the not the Bible, but the, oh, you might say the catechism of the Jewish faith, 
and it has all the 613 laws that the Jewish people live by. The Christians, on the other hand, started to develop their own theory. And as we said the, last week, the Mass that we know it today was not really developed uh, for another <clears throat> hundred years or so after the death of Christ. What happened was that mankind or the average family could celebrate the breaking of the bread as they understood it in their own homes as part of their evening meal. We Catholics often, and most of us and should, offer a thanksgiving before we uh, start to eat our meals. And most Catholics offer some form of, of thanksgiving afterwards. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of wanting Christ to be there with you. So the early Christian people developed their form and their understanding of the breaking of the bread ceremony in its very simple form. And, of course, with the breaking of the bread, the communion had to be part of it because they were still thinking of the Passover meal that the Jewish people celebrated once a year. Now, remember, most of these people carried their Jewish beliefs and customs into Christianity. And we still have a number of things that Christians now do that actually came from Judaism. <coughs> but as Paul's letters began to be developed, understood, circulated, and <coughs> people of certain intellectual levels, such as Irenaeus and Clement and a number of others, began to see the seriousness and the theology involved in Paul's letters. And even though they were sort of used <coughs> as part of the breaking of the bread ceremony by the average person, this was, of course, much later, um, they began to realize that this was a sacred ceremony. And over a period of time, and we're not sure because there are no records to tell us exactly when, but the ceremony began to be separated from the evening family meal and developed into a sacred ceremony of its own. Yes, they still had no instructions or rules regarding what the readings were, what other things and prayers and songs and so forth were added to it. And that didn't really happen for several hundred years. Most of the ceremonies took the form that we have today, but the readings uh, were not in any way cataloged to the point where everybody was reading the same thing on the same day. And I'll get into that as we go along, but actually that didn't happen uh, in a formal way 
until the 16th century. Okay. So, <clears throat> for nearly 15 or 1600 years, there was no formality in the Mass as it is today where everybody on every Mass in the Roman Rite reads the same words, the same Gospels and Epistles or letters as we do today. Right? Because during that period leading up to the Edict of Milan, which we'll get into in a few minutes, uh, there was a great deal of persecution and people could not move around. Therefore, communication was extremely difficult and writing was right, difficult. Uh, only a few people could read and write and therefore education in the way we think of it today is virtually non-existent. But, Lo and behold, Constantine, even though he had originally joined his father in putting down the Christians through the efforts of his mother, um, who prayed for him and his conversion, began to realize that Christianity was here to stay. And we... I think from what I've read uh, is that he began to see the destruction of the Roman Empire even long before it came. But there were signs of a breakdown because the Romans had <clears throat> indulged in a great deal of immorality and were losing sight of what was right and wrong. And through the efforts of uh, Constantine, he began to change the minds and hearts of many people and accept Christianity. So that he signed a declaration uh, in 313 in Milan. Now, people will say, well, why Milan? Well, because Rome had the been sacked a few times and Rome was declining and Milan for a short period of time was the capital of the empire and so this edict went out freeing all mankind to worship God or whomever, whatever uh, as they pleased and therefore persecutions as they had been known were completely wiped out. Constantine saw the advantage of what he was doing and came around to accepting Christianity himself, but he was never baptized until his death. And as the story goes, and I don't know how true this is, but as the story goes, he understood that baptism was a very important part of our ritual. And baptism, <clears throat> once received by a person for the right reasons of joining Christianity to worship and follow Jesus Christ, 
wiped out all previous sins. So he wanted to wait till he was on his deathbed so that he could have all his past sins wiped out and go straight to heaven. Whether that's true or not, you know, I, I kind of, I think it makes for a nice story, but I, I'm not so sure that that's true. Uh, we have no way of knowing. All right. Now, let, let's go to his, his mother. His mother was a very religious person way before uh, the Edict of Milan. And she prayed that uh, he would be, he, Constantine, would be uh, converted, and he was. So then he started building a number of famous uh, basilicas and churches and so forth, some of which are still in existence. Uh, but his mother took up the idea of going to Israel to find the true cross. So she took an entourage of people with her to Israel. And while they were there, of course, uh, since <clears throat> crucifixion then had been uh, stopped by the Edict of Milan, there were a number of crosses just dumped here, there, and everywhere. And a lot of the remains of crucifixion, which was only done by the Romans, <clears throat> the Jewish people did not crucify. Now, they were instrumental in getting the Romans to do it for them, but they did not do it themselves. So they didn't want anything to do with these crosses. So they were kind of scattered here and there. So St. Helena took her entourage and went there to find the true cross. And as the story goes, and again, story, I'm not certain of its historical value. But as the story goes, she had a servant with her who was became quite ill in the process of traveling. And when they were out searching for the true cross, at one particular point in time, they came across a number of discarded crosses. Now remember, the crosses were not always in the form that we see with nice clean wood that looked like it came from Home Depot. Okay. The crosses were primarily just the horizontal bar. Then it was hooked up into a tree that had been stripped and a notch put in the top of the tree, or at some point above, um, you know, eye level, above eye level. And then this crossbar would be shoved into that corner, or that notch. We don't know. Um, historians tell us that the cross that the two thieves that were crucified at the same time Jesus was, only had the crossbar. And why Jesus would have the cross in the form that we think of it today, we have no way of knowing. And whether that was true or not, again, I don't like to say something is emphatically true when I don't know and I don't think many other people know. So that's why I let you kind of make up your own mind. Anyways, 
As the story goes, they found a pile of crosses in the area near where Christ was crucified. And in searching through them, this servant touched one in particular and became sort of partially all of a sudden healed. Not fully, but partially. After praying for a while, they came to the conclusion, whether it was through vision or voices, we have no way of knowing, they came to the conclusion that this was the cross of the good thief. Well, that was a joy in itself, but then they had to continue through looking over all of these crosses, and at one point in time, this servant became, without any doubt, completely healed. And not only completely healed, but into a, a state of euphoria of some kind. And it was determined that this was the cross of Christ. Along with that, there was the crown of thorns, some of the nails, and a lot of other debris, of course. Those items have now been brought back to a church, a small church in, <clears throat> in Rome called the Church of the Holy Cross of Jerusalem. Chiesa della Santa Croce in Jerusalem. Um, I've been there. I've seen these articles. In fact, I've been there several times because I lived in Italy and whenever people would come, they would want me to escort them. You know, every, when people would come, friends and relatives from the States, they would want me to escort them to Rome, which I was glad to do. So I would take them there. At one time, about Hmm. 13 years ago, I took three of my grandchildren there as a high school graduation gift for, I took them there for two weeks, and we toured all through uh, Italy. And, of course, I had to take them to this particular church. And when you go in, there is a monk there, and he sort of guards the door or the entrance to this particular chapel, and he will allow you in, but, you know, he makes sure you don't have any packages with him. Of course, everybody has, um, like, photo uh, cameras and so forth and so on, but any large packages, they, those are not allowed in and so forth. But we were let in, of course, and it's in a small chapel behind the main uh, part of the church. And these artifacts are displayed under glass, of course. It was interesting that my grandchildren took all kinds of pictures. Now, this was long before the smartphones you know, were available, so this was camera with film in it. And they took all kinds of pictures before we went in. They took all kinds of pictures before or after we left there and went to other places. And when they were developed, all the pictures before and after came out beautifully. When they looked for the pictures that were taken inside this chapel, 
they were all blank. We have no understanding, we have no why. Everything was done the same as, as they would have otherwise. But <clears throat> the photos, the films came out blank. Anyways, <clears throat> it makes for a nice story. It makes, it's interesting. Now, the true cross <clears throat> is a very small piece of wood left. Because for centuries, people wanted parts of it. And they would take, you know, they would just hack off a piece here and there. So there's only a very small uh, part of it left. Uh, the cross of the good thief, there's a fair amount left, but it also shows that <clears throat> uh, much of it was cut off for people have, wanting souvenirs and so forth. So when you go in, don't expect the beautiful cross you know, wood coming from Home Depot. That's not the way it works. Okay. Um, but if any of you go to Rome, uh, be sure to go to uh, that particular church. It is uh, halfway between the train station and St. Mary Majors, which is one of the churches that Constantine uh, built. Of course, it's been remodeled and so forth many times. All right, so those are the kinds of things that we want to bring forward uh, into today's lecture, which is for the period we call the protected church. Now, for two or three hundred years after the Edict of Milan, Christianity developed rapidly because now it was not only uh, allowed within the Roman Empire, but it was helped in many ways by the Romans. And of course, Rome uh, was helped by the church making its uh, central location there. And much of the reason why the center of Christianity is still in Rome is because of Constantine and the help that he gave us way back in the fourth century AD. Now, let's talk a little bit about the persecutions that happened in the previous time period. It wasn't that there was wars going on. It was little skirmishes here and there, but it made it tough for people to get around, and that's the development of the catacombs. But at the same time, <clears throat> It made people want to know why so many Christians were ex accepting death rather than doing what their persecutors were trying to get them to do, and that is deny Christianity and accept uh, paganism or Judaism or some of the other uh, beliefs that were at involved at that in vogue at that time. Um, one of the things that was most difficult for the Romans to understand, as well as some of the others, is why there were so many people willing to accept death rather than uh, go back on their faith and their beliefs. 
And this then brought many people into the church. But at the same time, uh, because there was no central authority saying what to believe and how to believe the understanding of Paul's letters and the letters of some of the others, particularly uh, Peter's two letters, uh, James and John, etc., you began to have a number of well-meaning well-educated people, such as I've mentioned before, Irenaeus, Clement, uh, and, and several others, develop their theologies. Some of these were very crude and uh, elementary. Others were much more developed. But at the same time, you had a number of misunderstandings and beliefs that uh, the church could not accept. We call these heresies. It again is a way of the devil trying to pull down and either destroy or at least delay the increase of Christianity. So the number of heresies is listed there um, on, on your handout. Now, many of these heresies, and we're not going to get deeply into them, I just wanted you to see that there were a number, and then even, in fact, there are more than are listed here, but they were mostly variations of what is here. These are the main ones. Um, the one that was the most destructive was <clears throat> the one called Arianism. And all of these are named after the individual who first uh, promoted them. <clears throat> they were started by people mostly of good faith who got way off on a tangent and wanted to develop uh, various strange ideas that uh, the church could not accept. And so these were all put down by various councils. But I wanted you to just kind of go through this at your uh, own time to see that there was a number over a period of, a long period of time, uh, that was really the instrument of the devil trying to get back at the church. Remember, as we talked about in the first meeting, there is this constant battle between the devil and God um, or between good and evil that will go on for centuries and we have it affecting us even today. Right. But heresies were sometimes unusual beliefs. I mentioned Arianism. Arianism was a heresy that denied the divinity of Christ along with several other things. And it lasted for many, many centuries. Even though it was put down by various councils, it was uh, in effect and would pop up every so often. The others had some really weird uh, beliefs, and you can find all of these really on uh, uh, by Google or one of the <coughs> search engines. Yeah. I don't think it's 
necessary for us to get into these in detail, but I wanted you to know them uh, and know about them because it's important, because these were major, major uh, factors against the development of the church. Okay. Now, along with these, of course, were people that developed great theologies. Now, not all of the theologies, of course, were what the church wanted uh, people to believe, so they had to be straightened out, and they did that through the ecumenical councils. Because of the persecutions, they couldn't hold a council of that kind. Um, and I'd like you to go to the section here on these ecumenical councils, all right? Because these are important. And they began in this time period that we are discussing today. Most of them came in this time period and immediately into the next. But the Council of Nicaea, its principal action was the condemnation of Arianism that we had just talked about, the most devastating of the early heresies, which denied the divinity of Christ. The heresy was authored by Arius, an Alexandrian priest. Arian and several kinds of semi-Arians propagandized their tenets widely and established uh, their own hierarchies and churches and raised havoc in the church for several centuries. The council contributed, the council of Nicaea contributed to the formulation of the Nicene Creed. This is the creed that we say every Sunday uh, at Mass after the homily. The Nicene Creed is a listing of the beliefs that Catholics must believe. It is not all of them, but is the original group of beliefs that the Catholics must believe. And if there is any that you don't understand or don't believe or have a hard time accepting, let me know and we'll talk about it. And the other problem that existed at that time was the date that Easter should be celebrated on. There was no quarrel of the fact that Easter was on Sunday, but what date? Now, we always say the date of Christmas is the 25th of December, and that doesn't vary uh, in the West or the Roman area. Even today, Christmas is on the 25th of December. When and how that was established, we don't really know. Uh, it was probably in the same way, but history has, has lost the, the origin of that particular date. Nevertheless, Easter was more important at that time than Christmas. And because it was on Sunday, they wanted to maintain the idea of Sunday. But remember, Easter 
was three days after the Passover of the, the Jewish people at that particular time period. So they wanted to main, maintain some relationship there. Now, how would they go about that? Well, Easter is always, I mean, Passover is always the evening of the first full moon in springtime, March or April, mostly March after 21st. The first full moon in springtime. Okay, so that would limit it to uh, the last part of, <coughs> part of March and the first part of April. <coughs> and that could be accepted without any problem. Remember, the Jewish people went by a lunar calendar. And so that is why Passover is always a fluctuating day depending on the first full moon in springtime. And some of the Christians wanted to maintain that Easter should be on uh, the third day after that first full moon. Well, that became, you know, to us it sounds like a very simple and almost idiotic thing to talk about, but it became a major problem at this particular time. Um, and you had sides developing strong feelings about which side they believed in. But at the Council of Nicaea, it was finally decided that it would be on the first Sunday after the first full moon in springtime. And that is the way Easter is determined today. So because the lunar calendar is 99.9% perfect and can be developed for centuries ahead as well as centuries below, it is something that we have all just automatically accepted. So Easter is now on the first Sunday after the first full moon in springtime. The Egyptians were really the ones that discovered and documented the whole idea of the lunar calendar. And the Egyptians went by the lunar calendar uh, up uh, <coughs> until uh, Julius Caesar issued his Julian calendar, which became the calendar for most countries up until the 13th century, when Pope Gregory the 13th, I believe it was, uh, just um, instituted the Gregorian calendar. And that is the one that we go by today. Uh, the whole world accepts the Gregorian calendar. Um, but that was, uh, you know, not until much, much later. Okay. Any other comments or questions regarding uh, the councils? There are 21 councils. Yeah. 
Yes. The east, the, I'm glad you brought that up, Jim. Uh, the eastern part, or the eastern part of the Roman Empire, that was, uh, I forgot, uh, there, and that's something we want to talk about a little later, is the, the controversy and the pull and, and so forth of, between Rome and Constantinople. Constantinople was actually established uh, by Constantine's father, Constantius. But the break between the um, east and the west at least as far as the church was concerned, didn't happen officially until the 11th century. But there was always this divide uh, in certain uh, portions of their beliefs. And one of them is that the Easter, Eastern Church still maintains that Easter is on the third Sunday well, no, wait, that would be the same thing, of course. I don't know. There is a, there is a, a difference there. They also celebrate Christmas uh, two weeks later than the Roman or Christian Roman Christians do. And I I'm sorry, but I just can't give you any other reasons for that. All right. I, again. There are 21 official councils uh, beginning in 325 with the Council of Nicaea and ending with Vatican II in 1965. Now, let me also confuse you a little bit <clears throat> by the fact that there was one before this one of Nicaea. And it is outlined in chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles. But because there is no documentation available other than what is in the Acts of the Apostles, <coughs> it has not been included in the list of councils, ecumenical councils. All right. So the first official council of the church is this one uh, from Nicaea. <coughs> and then you had all of these others. And as you see, uh, as time goes on, there were many in the first uh, three or four hundred years of the church, and then the time between each of them began to spread out. Okay. The most important of all of these is the Lateran Consul in the 16th century. No, I'm, I'm sorry, not Lateran Consul, the Consul of Trent in the 16th century, and the Vatican II Council in the 20th century. Those are the most important of all of the councils of the church. And the reason I'm kind of building this up is because this is the way the church is governed. Yes, the head guy is the pope. But he doesn't operate totally on his own, like our uh, illustrious president. Pardon the inference. 
you've got to understand that though the Pope can speak infallibly, and everybody must believe that, it is only when he is speaking in ex cathedra, meaning from the chair of Peter, and on the subjects of faith and morals. All right. If he wanted to say, well, tomorrow we're going to change the name of, of the day from Thursday to, you know, Moon Day, in honor of Moonbeam, God forbid. <clears throat> People would just will say, sorry, you know, we're not going to believe that. That's nonsense. It is only when the Pope is speaking in matters of faith and morals that he uses the infallibility power. But he doesn't do that solely on his own. He goes through this kind of effort of having councils or synods or other kinds of meetings, and he does a lot of research and a heck of a lot of prayer before any document or declaration is made. Yes, ma'am. Uh, does he ever go to the cardinals and ask for advice or anything? You bet he does, yes. Most of the people in what is called the Curia, it is like our... Uh, and he just don't do it on his own? No, no, no. Okay. The church is not operated solely by one person. He gets advice from many, many people that's why it has taken him so long uh, to make any formal comments about the current scandal. Uh, because he is trying to get everybody's ideas and concepts. And then whenever he makes a declaration of some kind, it is after it has been approved by the Curia and a number of other people. He doesn't just flip off on his own. But why do then a lot of people blame the Pope for this and this and this? They don't don't know who the other people are in most cases. So it's easy to blame the guy that voices uh, whatever it is they don't like. Okay. But this is the formal way that the church operates. And it is only when there is major problems arising, such as Vatican I, which was back in the middle of the 19th century. It was called because there were a number of people that were disputing the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And it became such a problem that the church had to step out and issue a document on the Immaculate Conception. The only other time that we had a problem such as that, but it didn't take um, an ecumenical council to do it, was when the Pope made a declaration after many people approved of the Assumption of Mary. So in the last 200 years, the Pope has only spoken infallibly on two issues. 
both relating to Mary, both of which were believed by most of the people for centuries, but because certain problems had come up questioning that or attacking it, he had to step out and make a dogmatic statement that we now must believe. That is a, no, uh, well, it could be. Um, there are several levels of communication from Rome. And that's a good point that you've made. Uh, the encyclicals are, just as the word implies, a circular letter. That's what the word means. It comes from Latin. All right. And it generally implies a major point of doctrine. Not dogma, but doctrine. Remember, all dogma is doctrine, but not all doctrine is dogma. Dogma is a much higher level. And there are few, fewer dogmas than doctrines. And all of these, I would not want to call them laws. I would call them guidelines. The church doesn't want and God doesn't want us to love him and serve him solely because of laws. As we've said before, God wants to be loved and respected and served out of love because of who he is and what he has done for all mankind. But church has to have structure. And structure means that there are certain guidelines, certain rules that we follow. That's the problem with most of these other Protestant uh, Protestant slash Christian denominations. They have no central creed, they have no central authority, and they change with, you know, the whim of the wind. And the Catholic Church cannot and will not do that. Yes, ma'am. From theology of several um, theologians way back centuries before. Well, the whole idea of why would God choose a unmarried woman? Remember, Mary was betrothed, but in that culture, she wasn't fully married. And I've written a, a long paper on this, which I have distributed in the past, but let's go over it because there are a number of people, perhaps as yourself, who were not here for that. All right, but you you gotta you gotta remember that when Mary appeared to Bernadette in the middle of the 19th century in Lourdes, when Bernadette asked her who she was, Bernadette obviously had some idea, but she wasn't sure. So she asked the lady that appeared to her in the grotto at Messabiel in Lourdes who she was. 
she answered, I am the Immaculate Conception. And that has been a belief of the Catholic Church for centuries. But it was challenged in that particular time period, and therefore it was necessary that an ecumenical council would be developed and declare the Immaculate Conception a dogma that we must believe. Yes, that's good, because many people uh, misunderstand that and get it confused with the virgin birth. Okay? The Immaculate Conception, briefly, without going into a lot of theology, <coughs> refers to the fact that Mary was conceived uh, without the original sin impediment that all other mankind is. And the reason for that is because she was chosen to bear Jesus Christ for as his mother. And it was necessary for God to fashion a particular human being and make her perfect because God, Jesus, who is perfect, cannot live with or within somebody who is not perfect, and no other mankind is perfect to that degree. And therefore, Mary was conceived by her mother and father in the normal way, but a special dispensation was made for her that she was without the impediment of original sin. And that is why we call her the Immaculate Conception. That has nothing to do with the virgin birth. That is a concept where this same virgin, without any assistance uh, from humanity, gave birth to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we say virgin birth, she was virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. And that was necessary because God, as I said, cannot exist or live with anyone who is not perfect. And that, of course, without going into other things, is the whole belief between ourselves and other Christian denominations over the idea of purgatory. We cannot go to heaven if there is any stain of sin on our souls that has not been rectified uh, in one way or another. Uh, and therefore, if we die without serious sin, but still have other sins that have not been uh, resolved, then we are generally uh, sent to purgatory for a period uh, of time. And we don't know much about purgatory, but we have to believe it because it is part of our belief system. <coughs> 
got a little off track, but that's okay. We, uh, that's why we're here, is to talk about questions like that. Anybody have a problem with that? Yes, Mike? I've got a question that goes to the conversation. Could you explain, like, you know, the council of Norfolk says that they affirm the primacy of uh, the Pope over the councils, and you said that he has to consult, the Pope consults with the Cardinals and the Bishops. Mm -hmm. Could you explain how that actually works? Like, do they, do they take votes, and if it isn't unanimous, can he still decide, yeah, I believe this is the way we should declare this? I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, real versed on the exact procedure, but it would be pretty much uh, like a board of directors, and you know, the uh, chairman of the board generally has the last word. Uh, that's pretty much the way it would work. Right, so he takes in everything into account. He still makes the decision. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And we'll get into that in the next week or the following week. Um, the question there was when there was a disagreement, and that's got a long history, but there is a lot of documentation on it. So I'll be a little clearer uh, when we get into that next week uh, about the Avignon Popes, a period in the early 14th century, 14th century, uh, where there were three or four popes, or three or four men, I should say, jockeying for the position of pope. Um, and that went on for about 70 years. Uh, they lived in the city of Avignon, France. And for a reason uh, that yeah, belongs to our next week's discussion. Okay. But that was finally resolved, and uh, the Pope finally, all three of the three, it was three Popes, all three resigned, and they finally um, consented to a fourth Pope that then did go back to Rome. With the help of uh, St. Catherine of Siena. Yes, with the help of St. Catherine of Siena. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and that's an interesting part of the story as well, because in those days, you know, women didn't have much influence. Uh, but Catherine of Siena had a great deal of influence. The same way with uh, St. Teresa of Avila. If you want to read a good story, read the life history of St. Teresa of Avila. She was really a gutsy lady and took on the popes and a number of other people in trying to reform uh, much of the church and in the Carmelite order, yes. Yeah. Right. Oh yes, it's still there. Yeah, the, the French won't give that one up. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the French still uh, feels that that's where the Pope should be. You know. Uh, oh well. You know, that's like somebody else we know in Washington. You know? Yeah. Okay. 
I, I kind of lost lost my place as to where we were going here. <laughs> One of the things, and, and I see that Don and uh, Matursi have already left. My apologies to Don. Last uh, week, he asked a question regarding the Didache. And I want to get into talking about that. The Didache was the church's first attempt at listing its uh, beliefs beyond the uh, those that were discussed at the Council of Nicaea. It was like a catechism. And I have a copy here. Uh, I almost think it's the original, not quite. But uh, it's several pages long. And it got lost after it was first produced. Uh, they couldn't agree on it. Uh, not that they couldn't agree on some of the details, not the idea itself. But the Didache came out in the third century, uh, just before the Edict of Milan. But because of the persecutions and so forth, it had very little limited distribution and for centuries it got lost in somebody's files and was rediscovered in the early part of the 19th century. Uh, it is rather interesting. It's sort of a crude part of something that we would look upon as our catechism. Okay. <laughs> uh, it tries to list a number of beliefs and get in gets into a little bit of theology and I'm sorry I didn't get into that uh, when Don asked about it but I got caught up into another question but if anyone wants to take a look at this it's uh, 10 pages long and this is not all of it there's more to it than this yeah, it's written. It's written right on your uh, handout. Yeah. All right. If anyone is questioning the name and the pronunciation, we have a word in English that is related to it from the same root, didactic, meaning teaching, and that's what this is. It is a teaching. The Didache came is, is the Latin derivative. <clears throat> um, is it the first catechism? Or? It, it was an attempt at the first Catholic catechism, yes. Yeah. Yes. Was there anything in it that contradicted the Council of uh, Nicaea? Uh, Nicaea, no. In fact, the Council of Nicaea was reaffirmed in the next council, that is, the teachings were, uh, because a lot of people, and that doesn't mean that everybody agrees, uh, but when it com comes out in um, official form, again, in Latin, uh, it is then declared doctrine, and in some cases, dogma. Okay. But again, 
All dogma is doctrine, but not all doctrine is dogma. Dogma is a higher level. <coughs> Excuse me. The uh, period of time that we're talking about was peaceful, to the most part, uh, very busy, but it was centered more in spreading uh, the Gospels than uh, structure, more important than spreading the news than developing structure. So we don't have a lot of structure in this time period. That didn't happen until much later, almost a thousand years later. Next week we'll get into a different <clears throat> category of time. Excuse me. Where after the <clears throat> destruction of Rome and the Roman Empire, first by the Vandals, then the Goths, then the Visigoths, and then later Muslims, etc., etc., <clears throat> the Church and the Pope were probably the only authority still in existence that was recognized by almost all other authorities in countries. That doesn't mean they were, <clears throat> the Pope was always accepted by them, but recognized for his authority and the church as a stable force. In fact, it got so politicized that it became almost like a country in itself. Not so much in land, although there was land involved. <clears throat> but the church in the next week's lecture is called the church of the only authority, only recognized authority, really, by others. Whereas civilization began to uh, decline in structure, in beliefs, and everything else, the church rose to the occasion and tried to maintain order and develop a number of uh, services to help the people. And we'll get into that in greater detail next week. Okay. Any other questions? Have you learned something in, in all of this? Uh, so many so many people have come to me and asked questions that imply they think that what we have today always existed. And as you've already seen, it didn't. It had to grow from very simple beginnings and it had to experience a lot of opposition. And that is still the case. Even today, opposition is always looking to push against Rome. And much of that opposition comes from within. 
as we've seen already in, in recent days. And that's unfortunate. But what I want you to constantly remember, the church is divine and perfect. Not the people who run it, though. Okay. And it's unfortunate, but we human beings are all part of that group, the body of church. The church itself is divine. We, the body of the church on earth, are certainly not divine. Okay, And unfortunately, uh, sometimes the... <laughs> I'll use some poor language or poor grammar, but the worser side gets power over the better side. Well, that goes, yes, the whole idea of celibacy. It came and went, came and went both ways. And it wasn't official <clears throat> until the 10th, 10th, I forget, or the 11th century that all priests, in the Roman Rite had to remain celibate. So you see, for a thousand years, uh, there was no hard and fast rule. Uh, but it started in Spain in the fourth century, or this time period, that celibacy became a common thing, not required though, but very common. Also, in this time period, uh, many uh, monasteries and convents began to be developed. People would feel that they were so drawn by the faith and wanted to uh, spend all of their time uh, with God in a communal area or form and so monasteries uh, of men and convents of women began to develop. Not women so much, that came a little bit later. But several monasteries uh, began to be developed. And later on, and we'll see how these monasteries and convents became the original basis for not only our uh, hospitals, the nuns would have a way of bringing in people who needed medical care. And so the nuns were really the ones who started uh, the whole idea of taking care of sick people. And that's where hospitals came from. They were not in existence whatsoever in this early time period. Uh, the same way with monasteries began uh, the teaching of, of uh, ordinary people in a way that had not been done before. Teaching in the Roman Empire was always a one-on-one -on -one basis or sometimes a very small group where the teacher would sit and the students would stand around listening to him preach and teach. Uh, that developed after the monasteries of bringing in civilians or non-monks uh, or priests and start teaching the lay people. 
That is where the school system, particularly the public schools and the university systems began. Later on, we will see that a lot of that developed into other forms, such as astronomy, not astrology, astronomy. Okay. The whole idea of the sciences began to be developed through the church, the effects and the promotion and the support of the church. So the Dark Ages, as the, the next time period uh, was occasionally called, was anything but dark. There was a tremendous amount of growth, and in fact I'm thinking of bra breaking it into two sessions because there's so much to talk about. Yes, sir. Let me ask you, what do you think would be so bad about uh, the evolution of celibacy and what the priest did there? Personally, I don't see any problem with it. Uh, on the surface. But let's look at it in a little deeper sense. Right now, we have enough trouble with the priests doing, you know, various things that we all disagree with. But what happens if a priest is married and then decides that that marriage is not working and wants a divorce? Or what happens, and I have a personal experience with, uh, when I was still working, I had a secretary for about 17 years, so I got to know her and her family very well. She had five children. <clears throat> her husband was a pastor of one of the big, large uh, churches on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. Very prominent man and a very prominent church. The scandal that can come out of a family that breaks up like that can be far more detrimental than the good that having a married man in the church. Well, that's true, but my secretary constantly complained about working 40 hours for me and then going home and working two days for her husband as the wife of the pastor. So she never got a, she never got time off. Yeah. Yeah. And then one of her children created a problem that became a problem of that church. So you know there there there's pros and cons, and we're not going to solve that in here today. Another one there. Yes, Jim. Yeah, actually, I'm here. Uh, St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. Yes, there were a number of saints. Let me let me let me mention this. <clears throat> St. Augustine was probably the most influential of the early theologians. Aside from St. Paul, he was probably the first and the most influential. But he had a very colorful uh, early life, you might say. A real playboy, fathered a child out of wedlock, and so forth and so on. But his mother, uh, again, mother's influence, prayed and prayed and prayed for, I don't know how many, 20 or 30 years, that he would be converted. 
and he finally was converted, and he really did an outstanding job. Uh, his theology took the form of Aristotle's philosophy, and of course that became about a contention much later in the church, but it is still recognized today as uh, one of the first and the strongest of the early theologians. Okay. The next one uh, would be St. Thomas Aquinas, but that was much later. Let the dead bury, let the very, yes, but you're, you're, you're misinterpreting some of that. Yes, yeah. You gotta be very, very careful in that respect. Any other questions? Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for helping us and encouraging us to explore our faith, its, its sources, its origins, and its meaning. Help us then, Lord, to settle down and accept what we have been given through the church. For we can believe that it is from you since the church, the Pope, and his associates would not give us anything that was not from you. So we thank you for this time together. We ask that you help us to continue our efforts in exploring the history of the Catholic Church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.